Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Romans chapter 8. We started a message last week. Actually, Romy started it two weeks ago. And I kind of want to continue on this topic of mental health, of mental health. And I'll give you a little bit of a recap from last week, but maybe take this in a, in a bit of a different direction. Mental health is a real buzz thing right now, isn't it? It's, it's important. I think the good thing about the talks about mental health is it's coming to the forefront. People are realizing that we can actually talk about this. We can recognize that maybe not everybody's doing so great. And you don't have to hide in a corner, pretend like everything is okay. I have been working for years with uh, a lot of our military people dealing with uh, PTSD and either coming back from combat once the wars first came out um, to now COVID SD, I guess it is uh, PTSD. And, and, and so there has been a real challenge for people with, with mental health. Um, but one of those challenges that I've seen is people are trying to separate mental health out as if somehow you've got to either heal your brain um, through neuroplasticity and some of those things that work through through uh, medicine or just by thinking differently. But our makeup is divided into three different areas. Like I'm a human being, but I am body, soul, and spirit. It's kind of what we talked about last week. And even in the YouTube channels, a little bit backlog, we do tend to get the podcast up by Monday or Tuesday. So if you missed it, you can still catch the podcast. I just don't know if the illustration that I use translate without the video. Um, But we're made up of those three things, body, mind, and spirit. So our body is our flesh. The Bible calls it our flesh or our carnal self. It is is our, our, um, our physical body, our wants, our desires, those kind of things. Our soul or our mind, uh, the soul consists of more than just your, your thinking, okay? It is your mind, your will, and your emotions. So my activation of my will is part of my soul. That's the other part. And the third part is your spirit, or your pneuma in the Greek. And it is that thing that um, when Jesus comes into your heart and redeems you, he redeems your spirit. It's your spirit that actually gets saved. It's the eternal part of our being. So at some point, my soul dies, and at some point, my flesh dies, but but my spirit goes on forever. And when we give our hearts to Jesus, he breathes, he gives us his spirit, and our spirit is redeemed and renewed by his spirit, okay? The challenge with mental health and some of the, the solutions that have been offered today is it only deals with the soul. In other words, if you fix your soul, then everything else will be okay. Your mind, your will, and your emotions. If you feel differently, you'll be different. If you think differently, you'll be different. But it's not actually the way mental health gets good. Mental health is spiritual health. It's just manifested in the mind. So you cannot have good mental health without also having good spiritual health. You can't have a sick spirit and a good mind. But because we're divided into body, soul, and spirit, that soul part of us is never actually in charge. The soul never gets to call the shots. The soul always follows. It can only follow, and it can only go in one direction or the other. The soul will either follow the flesh 
or it will follow the Spirit. Now, when, before you actually become a Christian, before you surrender your heart to Jesus, your spirit is not really in charge because it only does what the flesh wants to do. So the spirit is just following the whims, the desires, um, all those things that the flesh wants to do. But once your spirit gets renewed, it now gets put into a potential leadership position. It gets promoted because of the breath of God that's in us. We now have a choice as to whether we can be led by our flesh or whether we can be led by our spirit. And it's the spirit-led life that brings spiritual health and mental health, and catch this, and physical health. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die so that we could go to heaven. In fact, if you read Jesus' prayer when he teaches us how to pray, he says, pray, my kingdom done, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So our spirit being redeemed doesn't just mean we go to heaven. It means heaven comes here. When Jesus came to the earth, it was God incarnate. Heaven came to us. And I don't want to get into the position where I just want to get somebody to pray a prayer so that when they die, they go to heaven and you're just going to have to suffer on earth. That's not what Jesus said. He said, you can have heaven now. I'm getting off track. So when you have a redeemed spirit, you can put the spirit in the lead and go to the place where heaven is your home. And if you do that, then eventually the soul, which includes the mind and the body, line up. Jesus didn't just die so we can be saved. Jesus died so we can be healed. When we take communion together, which we need to do more often, I just realized. When we take communion together, Jesus picked up the bread and said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. This blood, this cup represents my blood that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. The body that was broken for us, because I thought about this, Jesus just needed to die on the cross for me to be forgiven of my sins. But in reality, Jesus could have chosen his death any way he wanted to. Why did he go through so much pain leading up to the cross? Why was he beaten in scores and a crown of thorns put on his head? Because it's by those stripes that we're healed. So when his body was broken, it provided healing for us in addition to salvation. So when our spirit gets redeemed and we're led by that redeemed spirit, we can have spiritual health, mental health, and physical health. Now, you may think that's not my reality now. I still have a little bit of a messed up knee. I've got my back's a little sore. You know, I still deal with emotional issues. And, okay, I can have good mental health, but what if I'm not having good mental health now? Well, if I'm dealing with an injury and I'm not healed yet, the last thing I want to do is develop, develop what I call a theology of failure that says, if I want to be healed and I'm not healed, then God must not heal. You see, I've developed a theology around what didn't happen. I've, I've changed my theology to meet my circumstances. Instead, I want to say, I'm not healed yet, but I know that by his stripes I've been healed. So instead of saying, God, why haven't you healed me? I'm going, God, if I can have that, if it's on the menu, I want it. So if I can have that, how do I get it? How do I get there? If you're struggling in your mental health, I don't want you to get to the place and go, well, 
This is, Paul had a thorn in his side, and this is just a thorn in my side. No. If you're struggling mentally, emotionally, know that if my spirit's been redeemed, and if I can live according to the spirit, I can have great mental health. I just need to make sure that my soul is following my spirit and not following my flesh. You see, when the soul follows the spirit to where God wants us to be, the flesh has to come along. It can't be left alone. It has to come. But when you start to follow the flesh, the spirit's like, well, I guess we're going that way, but I want to go this way. Romans chapter 8, verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Mental health is spiritual health. Do you see that? You can't fix your thinking just by thinking differently. Because not only can the soul and the mind not lead, remember it can't lead, it can only follow flesh or spirit, but it also can't renew itself. I know Romans 12 2, don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But you have to renew your mind, yes, but the mind can't renew itself. I can't just think differently. You ever have that moment when you can't help but think what you think? And you're like, why is it I keep thinking that? I don't want to think that. And the more I say, don't think that, don't think that, don't think that, what happens? You're thinking about it. So your mind can't renew itself. The spirit has to renew the mind. So when my mind wants to go there, I want to tap into my renewed spirit and say, nope, the spirit wants to follow God's commands. It wants to follow his laws. It wants to get the word into me. So when I think one way, I'm not saying don't think that, don't think that. If, if I sat here and said, don't think about an elephant, whatever you do, don't think about an elephant. All of you are thinking about an elephant, right? But when you say, instead of the, God, what is it that you want me to think? By your stripes, I'm healed. That is letting the spirit lead. And eventually, your reality of what you're in now, it'll catch up. But don't say, because I can't stop thinking that way, I'm either just going to stay here or I'm just going to follow the flesh. I think probably one of the biggest sadnesses I see right now in the era of mental health, I do think it's good that people can come out and say, hey, I'm struggling. That is a good process. But what is not good is when people gather around and go, it's okay everybody struggles. It's okay. You're awesome. You're great. And it's still an appeal to another part of the soul, which is our emotions. So if I'm struggling mentally, I'm going to come alongside and tell somebody everything is okay. You're actually awesome. So that your emotions feel better, but the emotions are not in the lead. You can't heal your emotions until your spirit's healed. And here's the hard part. I don't know any more transforming and powerful tool for changing the way we think than repentance and forgiveness. I don't know anything better. I don't know anything stronger. I'd like to say, 
because I'm a pastor, right? Like the, my gifting is more pastoral. And so when someone's hurting, I want to come alongside and I want to go, hey, it's going to be okay. Hey, listen, God loves you. All those things are true. And it's okay that you feel this way. And here's three other people that feel that way too. And maybe if the three of you get together, you'll all feel better together. But that's not what happens. You all get together and now all of a sudden it gets stronger. And they've reaffirmed your pain instead of showing you the way out. But I know that I actually need to, if I'm having an area where I'm not doing well emotionally or mentally, and repentance and forgiveness are probably the two biggest tools for getting me healthy in that area. Instead of me trying to phone a friend or see what everybody else has commented on my Facebook posts, I've got to go, God, what is in me that I need to give to you? God, who is it that I need to forgive that I may not even be aware of? Am I holding some kind of unforgiveness in my heart? Have I thought that I've forgiven somebody, but I just need to do it again? Jesus, you told Peter when he said, how many times should we forgive? And you said 70 times seven. Do you know what I get when I read that? Sometimes it takes more than one. You ever forgiven somebody and you're good? And then the next day you're like, that. God, I forgive. But it takes that. It takes that. And don't beat yourself up because you got to keep forgiving the same person. Keep forgiving them until God goes, you're good. And until he says it, keep doing it. You may have to forgive somebody and you're like, good, God, is there anybody else? And then you could spend an hour and you've gone through a list that God keeps giving you. Keep going. Because what's going to happen is you're going to get free. And you're going to start to renew your spirit again and put the spirit in charge. When you're dealing with tough mental challenges and emotional problems, sometimes the answer is just, God, is there any sin in my life that I may not be aware of that I need to give over to you? That's a hard thing to tell somebody who has been dealing with challenges all of their life or for years and years, and you have to tell them, Maybe you need to repent. But you don't know what they did to me. Maybe you need to forgive. But what they did was wrong. I'm not saying it isn't. But your lack of forgiveness is holding you in bondage to the very thing that you think you want them to forgive you of. What if they never came back and said sorry? Are you going to go to your grave with these chains still on you? Forgiveness breaks the chains that the enemy wants to put on you. And can I tell you, it doesn't mean that what they did was right. It just means that it's not going to hold me back anymore. I'm not always responsible for what got into my heart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes stuff just gets there. Sometimes I've just got an attitude and I put stuff in there. Sometimes sin means something got into my heart. But sometimes people just do stuff to you. And it ends up in your heart. So no, you're not always responsible for how something got in. 
but I am responsible for what I do with it. And it's hard to look at something that's in your heart and go, I am this way because of the abuse I suffered as a child. I am this way because of what they did. But the enemy goes, yep, and you'll always be that way. You may even go do great things for God. You may pastor a church that reaches thousands and be a celebrity pastor, but because of this damage that's happened to you, you will never get rid of this thing. You may go on and become a, a, a massive elected official. I'm not talking about anybody in particular. You may become the president of the United States. You may become the president of your company. But the enemy goes, yeah, but because of this thing, you're always going to be like this and it's always going to hold you back. And God goes, no, that's not what I see when I look at you. And by the way, your identity comes from your heavenly father, not the father of lies. I'm not responsible for how things get into my heart, but I am responsible for what I do with it. So the question is, what do we do? Well, I want peace of mind. Does anybody else want that? Does anybody else want to be able to look at election results and have peace of mind? Does anyone else want to be able to go to the, uh, find out how many people have COVID now and have peace of mind? Do any of you want to be able to sit in a doctor's office getting a COVID test and still have peace of mind? Do you want to be able to go into your workplace and face your coworker who's been talking about you behind your back and you just found out they've been doing that and still have, not give a piece of your mind, <laughs> but actually have peace of mind. John 14, 27. We talked about this last week. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. He doesn't say my peace you got to earn. I just, you want peace? I give it to you. Jesus says, I do not give you as the world gives. So do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace of mind, I want you to catch this, is a fruit of the it's a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace. A fruit of the Spirit. It's not like a reward you get from an accomplishment. It's a fruit. A fruit tree just bears the fruit that it's supposed to bear. If I plant an apple tree, eventually it's just going to produce apples because it's what it does. So it's a fruit of the Spirit. That means when I follow the Spirit, when I put the Spirit in charge, when I'm led by the Spirit, that road that leads to life and peace, then peace was going to come. Peace comes from being led by the Spirit, not by making a decision to think differently. It doesn't come by surrounding yourself with people who affect your emotions differently. It doesn't come from satisfying the desires of the flesh. It doesn't come from great food. And I looked at you, that's why I said great food. And I love great food. It doesn't come from great exercise. It doesn't come from great couch and Netflix time. It comes from being led by the Spirit. If you're led by the Spirit, 
If you just follow the promptings and the leadings of the Holy Spirit, those subtle things that go, not this way, that way. The subtle thing that goes, you need to forgive. And your flesh goes, no, you don't. They wronged you. And your spirit goes, yes, you do. You need to forgive. When you choose to forgive, you are being led by the Spirit and silencing the flesh, and peace just comes. Because He gives it. Jesus gives it freely. It's not earned. Love, joy, peace. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. A flesh-led mind will never find peace. It will never find it. Because it's, the mind is governed by the, when the mind is governed by the flesh, it brings death. That flesh-led life, it's like it's, it's always overcome by the day. You know what I mean? It doesn't get stronger. It gets weaker because your flesh gets weaker. And so every time, it's, I'm too tired to pray. I want to read my Bible, but I'd rather see what's happening on my phone. That's me. Circumstances don't bring peace. Jesus brings peace. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of things. I was actually on a bike ride the other day. Big shock, I know. But the Lord was speaking to me, and... uh I found myself just slowing down and I had to pull over and I just had to start writing down. He's just downloading this stuff to me. And we've had some difficult things we've been facing this week, just was not with us personally, but some friends of ours who we know and heart was just grieved, really, really grieved. Um, and I felt the Lord say, this is the most important scripture for you right now. And it's Matthew six thirty three. I'm not saying that's the most important scripture in the Bible. He's going, this is like, you ever read your Bible and the God's like highlighting stuff to you? But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So in a Hebrew context, and Romy, help me out with this if I get this wrong, because she's the one that taught me this. The Hebrew understanding of that, but seek first the kingdom of God. He's speaking to a, a Jewish culture, and in that Jewish culture, they would understand seeking first, meaning you're giving your all to that thing, right? That when I seek first, it is, it is all of me giving to it, and the framework for giving your all to something in a Jewish Hebrew culture is worship. So when you give your all to something, that's what worship is. Is that right? Close enough? So when he's saying, seek first his kingdom and righteousness, there's the point I want to make. Hey, you be married to an MDiv student. And you'll learn all kinds of great stuff. So when we're seeking first the kingdom, it first of all means worship. So when you're spirit-led, the spirit's going to lead you to seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And worship is probably the most key component of seeking kingdom first. Worship brings stability to our soul. The middleman, it brings stability to our soul. Remember, I'm not always responsible for what gets into my heart, but I am responsible for what I do with it. The Bible tells us that we're to worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship stabilizes our emotions, our mind, our will. You see, when we worship and when we pray, it's an exchange of our will for God's. Remember Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. Did I just throw out a thine? 
Wow. That's old New King James right there. Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is saying, I'm exchanging my will for the Father's. So when we worship and when we pray, there's an exchange of wills. It means not my will, which is the flesh, but your will, which is your spirit. And now that your spirit lives in me, I can go that direction. When it comes to worship, there's two people I want to share some stories with you about, and we'll end with this in the Bible, where worship was such a key component for them, and it got displayed at some pretty difficult times in their life. The first guy's name is Job. Anybody ever heard of Job? Anybody ever call him Job? Before you heard the preacher say Job, and you're like, I cannot find this J-O-B-E. Where is that? He's talking about Job. So Job in Job chapter 1. I'm going to break into the story, and I don't want to get into the why this happened. But Job was the most righteous man who had lived at that time. So righteous that when the devil came into God's presence, God's bragging about Job. Hey, devil, have you seen my man Job? Imagine God bragging about you to the enemy. Seeing what happened to Job, maybe I don't want him to do that right now. But he's bragging, look at my man Job. I love that God thinks that way about you, right? Look at my man Job, right? So there's this great cosmic test that happens in Job's life. And in verse 13, I'll pick it up here. Job chapter 1, verse 13. It says, one day when Job's sons and daughters, I should give some context to this if you don't know the story. So the enemy, Satan, tells God, the only reason he loves you and serves you is because you've blessed him. But I bet if you took all that stuff away, he wouldn't love you or serve you anymore, right? But you know what Job knew? It's not the fruit of things. It's the fruit of the Spirit. He didn't even know what the Holy Spirit was then, right? So he said, let me take everything away from him and see if he'll still serve you. So God said, you can take everything away, you just can't kill him, right? And so this is what actually happens. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, You think you'd lock the door by now, right? The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Within the context and the time it took for me to read you this, he has lost all of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his kids, everything. He's lost everything. You think it's hard when you finally look at your 401k and you're like, oh, it's gone by 50%. This is worse than that. He's lost everything in a moment. He went from blessed, happy, fortunate to be envied to losing everything. 
Look at this next verse. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship. I don't know about you, but that may not have been my first response. He fell to the ground and worshiped. The second person I want to tell you about is a guy named David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, David was the king of Israel at the height and pinnacle of his power. He had secured pretty much the whole nation of all of its enemies, finished the job that Joshua didn't quite finish. That's not true. Joshua did finish it. I'm getting off track. Basically, he secured Israel's borders from its enemies, something that took a lot of work. God said, this is a man after my own heart. David had killed Goliath. He had led the armies in battle. He had honored even Saul, the one who was trying to kill him. Man, he carried God's heart. But David had a moment. He was up on his roof one night, and he saw a woman bathing on the roof down next to him, and he lusted after her. And so he sent for servants to come get her, and she came, and he, he uh, slept with her and sent her back home. She was married. So was he, by the way. He committed adultery. Then he finds out she gets pregnant. Uh-oh. What's a good response? Hey, guys, I, <laughs> I made a mistake here. But no, that's not what he does. He goes and finds this guy, this, this woman Bathsheba, her husband Uriah, who's off fighting a war for David. Uriah comes back. And he tells Uriah, hey, I brought you home from battle and you're doing great. Why don't you go home tonight and we'll just see what happens since you've been away from your wife for a long time. Well, he's trying to get his wife to sleep. Sorry, he's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife to cover it up because then when he finds out she's pregnant, he'll think the baby's his and whew, man. But you know what Uriah does? Uriah refuses to go home. And he just sleeps on the steps of the palace. And David's like, why didn't you go home? He goes, all the boys are off fighting war. How could I dare go home and sleep with my wife when I'm supposed to be out there? You cannot find a more honoring man than that. So then he gets him drunk. You know what? I bet if I get him drunk, I'll get him to go home. So he gets him drunk by having this big feast with him, welcomes him to the king's table. I'm going to wine and dine him, send him home, and this is all going to work out. David's got every resource available to him to make things happen. So Uriah does what the king tells him to do, but then he goes right back to those steps again and falls asleep. I'm not going home. I would never dishonor the king or my men by going home to do this. It wouldn't be right. So David's got to come up with another plan. So David has this plan. Well, if I can't get him to sleep with his wife, I guess he's got to go. So he develops this plan for Uriah to be at the front lines of the battle. And then right when he goes up front, he's instructed the commander of the armies for everybody else to pull back to leave Uriah exposed. 
and he writes the instructions for Uriah's death. And guess who he gives it to to carry that message to the commander of the army? Uriah. He gives him the letter. Hey, I want you to give this to your commander. This is me telling them to kill you. Uriah carries it to that place, gives it to Joab, the commander of the army, and they do everything they're told to, and Uriah dies. How many of you know this is not David's best day? And there are so many different moments in here when he could have just confessed and got it right, and he didn't. I'd love to see the face of David when he met Uriah in heaven. They're in heaven together right now. Anyway. So then the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David, tells him a little story. If you're a VeggieTale guy, he used a flannel graph. How many of you remember the VeggieTales versions of stories instead of the actual Bible stories? All the parents just raised their hand. Single people like, what are VeggieTales? You will find out in Jesus' name. So Nathan gets his flannel graph up and he starts explaining to him and he basically tells this story about a man who has a sheep and he's painting a picture and putting David into a corner and he's explaining the very situation that David had just done, but he's using a story to tell it. And he asks him, what should be done to that man that stole that ewe lamb? And David said, that guy should be put to death and all of his stuff needs to be given, blah, 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 blah. And Nathan goes, you're that man. And instantly, David's confronted with his own sin. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, what happened is Nathan told him, your sins are forgiven, but the child's going to die. And that child ended up dying. I can't think of a bigger tragedy for a parent than losing a child. And in verse 20, it says, then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He just lost his son, who even was the fruit of his own sin. But his response when confronted with sin, his response when suffering the consequence of those sin, is worship. Not shame, not blame, but worship. You know, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. This is a scripture that Jesus quoted in Luke chapter 16. It says, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Do you know what a captive is? Maybe hostage is a better word. It's when you're taken away by somebody else through no fault of your own. Do you know what a prisoner is? Somebody who goes to jail because they committed a crime. The captive suffers this same punishment because of nothing that they did, but the prisoner is actually suffering the consequence of their own sin. And Jesus says, I've come to proclaim freedom for captives and release from darkness for prisoners. You see, Job didn't do anything to deserve losing everything. In fact, if he deserved anything, it was all the blessings that he had. He hadn't sinned. He was blameless. 
but yet he still lost everything. David, David sinned and then multiplied his sin to try to cover it up. And yet the response of both of these men is worship. Is worship. When I'm confronted with my own sin, I'm going to worship. When I suffer the results of what other people have done to me that I don't deserve, my response is worship. I'm not going to let anything stand in the way of me and the will of my Father to know Him, to walk with Him in the cool of the day, to walk with Him, to know Him, epignosis, to have a relationship with Him, that I'll know the truth and the truth will set me free. These men worship and it's why they made it. It's why they made it through. I know that we say this a lot, that Jesus is on the throne. No matter who wins the election, Jesus is on the throne. No matter what happens, Jesus is on the throne. Yeah, of course he is. He's on his throne. The question is, is he on yours? Because when I worship, I'm putting Jesus on the throne of my heart. At the king of my heart. That's why I love that song, that great Stephanie Greitzinger song. When we worship, it puts him on the throne of our heart. It stabilizes our emotion. It secures our soul. We were made for worship. We're made for it. We're designed to worship. That's what God designed us for. So I would pay attention to how easily my heart engages in worship. Because if you have a hard time engaging in worship, it ain't the song. It ain't the worship leader. It's not the bass player. Certainly not the bass player. Because our bass players are awesome. It's something in your own heart. I'm speaking to myself here. If you find distraction coming in in worship, pay attention to that. Because as much as I would pay attention to how easily my heart engages, I would also pay attention to how I feel when I'm in an environment of worship. And if you think worship is that half hour, 45 minutes, sometimes 90 minutes of worship on a Sunday morning, you're still missing it. But if I'm in this environment of worship, like we had this morning, how do you feel? Because there's been moments I've been in worship and I see everybody else smiling and happy, and I ain't feeling that. And it can feel isolating because I'm like, why am I in pain more now from seeing everybody else happy and clappy? Pay attention to your heart. What if it's a moment of worship and I'm super distracted? I'm checking my phone. I'm looking at all these things. I keep saying the phone because that's my distraction. I know I'm not alone. But pay attention to what your heart does when you're in an environment of worship. I've seen people that I know are dealing with mental health issues, and they disappear for worship. I'm just talking about in a service context. I'm like, where's so-and-so? Come to find out later, they're actually really battling some stuff. But if you're to follow Job and David's pattern, that when you find your heart disengaged from worship, don't listen to your flesh that says, it's just that song. If they sung the songs you like, it'd be great. I hope we do Waymaker because I can't, I can't do any of these other songs. Or you might be saying, you know what? It's just, 
everyone's going to pay attention to how you raise your hands. I'm 6'8". I was petrified of raising my hands in church because I thought everybody would be like, look at that freak of nature. Look how tall he is. So I raised my hands in worship one day. I'll never forget this. And I peeked out of my eye and I realized like, oh my gosh, no one's looking at me. And God's like, no one really cares. This ain't really about you. Thank God. Thank you, Lord. A heart that worships cannot fear. I'm not saying that a heart that worships does a little better. It can't. If my heart worships, it can't fear. It can't. Because fear and worship cannot exist in the same heart. Paul quoted this scripture this morning. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So if God gave us a sound mind, then fear is the enemy against that thing, and fear and worship can exist in the same heart. The answer to you not being fearful is not changing the way you think. It's to lay everything at his feet. Exchange your will for his. Worship Jesus and put him on the throne of your own heart. I'm not feeling it. You will. If you make a decision to worship, your feelings will line up with that. But the more you keep telling yourself, I can only worship if, is your flesh. I will worship because I'm made for worship. This is the way God wired me. This is what I'm designed for. I don't have to carry a note. I don't have to carry a tune. Nobody texted me the lyrics this morning, but that's okay. I'm going to sing a new song to the Lord. It may not even be in English. I don't know what it is, but my heart is engaged in worship. And as I do, my soul is stable. My mind is stable. My will is lined up with His will. And my emotions are not calling the shots anymore. They're lining up with the new spirit that's within me. Come on, pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that you are for us. I thank you that as we worship God, it changes the environment of a room. But man, does it change the environment of a heart. I thank you for the heart exchange that happens in worship, God, where I get your heart instead of mine. And I pray for every person here this morning that's making the decision to let their spirit lead. Let fruit come from this. I pray a peace of mind into people. I pray against the work of the enemy in Jesus' name that would distract people from the worship that you've called us to. You're looking for those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. On the truth of your word of who you are. On the truth of our identity in you. I thank you that you are good. You are good. You are good. And we speak peace of mind over every person in this room right now. Every spirit of distraction. Every spirit of despair. Every spirit of hopelessness. Every spirit of fear. Fear of physical illness. Fear of mental illness. You are gone. We silence you. We bind you in the name of Jesus. The principalities of cancer. The principalities of allergies. We bind you in the name of Jesus. As we worship, God, you bring healing. Healing is in your wings. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.